1: This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague.
2: Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here from Somewhere in the Skies, and I am really excited about this interview. It has been a long time coming, and he should have been on the show so many times by now, but we have a very good reason tonight. He just came out with a brand new book that we're going to talk about, and that's Canada's UFOs Declassified. And We have the author and preeminent Canadian UFO researcher, Chris Rakowski, is with us today. So let's not waste any more time. We're going to talk about the book. We're going to talk about a very interesting story out of Canada with the uh, with the defense minister and Chris's connection to that as well. So without further ado, Chris, welcome to Somewhere in the Skies.
0: Thanks. Glad to be here.
2: It's my pleasure, man. Like I said, this has been a long time coming. Well, hey, let's not really, you know, waste any time. This big story I want to talk to you about Out of Canada, you have the Canadian defense minister who actually was briefed on UFOs. And correct me if I'm wrong, this was prior to the U.S. Intel report that came out as well. But you were kind of at the forefront of this. You were a big part of this story. Um, Would you mind telling our audience a little about what this story was and uh, your involvement with it? Well, sure. Um, As
0: many of your listeners may not know, but I've been involved in uh, ufology for a number of years now back uh, i started in the 70s so yes i'm really really old and um uh along the way i uh became involved with getting material from the uh uh, the various government departments in canada that were uh, receiving and responsible for looking into ufos and um back in 2021 uh, i had been contacted by the canadian department of national defense uh, for information regarding uh, what types of materials should the Minister of National Defense be told about regarding the history of UFOs in Canada and what's currently being done. And since I've been doing this for a while, and uh, uh, I've actually been in correspondence with, uh, uh, with the military and uh, other aviation people in, in Canada for quite a number of years now, uh, they look to me for assistance. Um, And, you know, doing my civic duty, of course, uh, I came up with a a series of things to provide to the Minister of National Defense. So to put this in perspective, just imagine if the Secretary of Defense in the United States uh, was going to be briefed on the subject of UAP. That's the equivalent up here in Canada for what happened. Uh, So I provided the information and that was actually the last I heard of it. I wasn't part of the actual briefing. Uh, I wasn't told when it was going to occur. Simply that I provided information, and then uh, this year, uh, some diligent uh, doc uh, uh, discoverers here in Canada have been filing various uh, access information requests. In Canada, they're not freedom of information requests; they're access to information requests. A little bit different. They they have some different connotations, but the same idea. Yes, the government give me everything you have, and. Uh, one person came up with uh, they had heard that there was a briefing somehow and he asked for the briefing and what happened was that they the, the government didn't release the briefing itself but released some slides some powerpoints uh that were part of the briefing and a little bit of information when it occurred and so forth and in this in these slides uh the Canadian government and and defense describe what was going on in Canada over the years, sort of the history going back uh, into the 50s, up to the 60s, 70s, 80s, and and to modern times, uh, and noting that a fellow named Chris Rakowski uh, was in fact uh, receiving um, uh, UFO reports from the Ministry of National Defense and Transport Canada, the equivalent of the FAA, uh, and that, uh, you know, that was the current status at that time. And what's interesting is, um, that my photo is actually on one of these slides. So uh, the military, including the Minister of National Defense, knows what I look like, uh, which is kind of interesting. But there was a there was a, the briefing itself and some discussion that ensued after it uh, that uh, we don't have any, any information exactly what occurred, but I can imagine people are trying to track that down as well.
2: Really interesting. Again, kind of putting it into perspective, like you said, I'm trying to imagine like what would happen if I got like an email that day being like, yeah, we need you to brief, you know, whoever the current defense minister or director is here in the United States. So, I mean, what does that look like? Like, did it, was it just like a random email you got from a government issued email address or were these individuals that you've been in contact with throughout the years, because I know a lot of the files on UFOs Mm -hmm. throughout the decades have gone directly to you. You are the go-to guy in your entire country, which still (laughs) astounds me. Um, So what what does that look like?
0: Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was one of the people who uh, uh, in one of the the military offices who had contacted me uh, and uh, somebody was actually posted with the, uh, with the minister's office uh, himself. And, you know, I, you know, very often I, I am getting requests from a military. Uh, Do I have this information or they're sending me a case or something like that? But once in a while, they'll send me something like, you know, we have a request asking about this particular case. Uh, and it mentions you in the official document. Do you mind if we release your name? I said, no, that's, you know, that's fine. So I have been in contact with uh, this per- this person who had contacted me and I didn't have a problem with it because, you know, I've been doing this. And uh, again, it's it's the type of thing that uh, I, I said civic duty, uh, federal duty, I suppose. But the idea is that, you know, I think this is important information. And the reason that I've been actually presenting some of these cases and it's, it's uh, you know, I would get a, a case uh, typically from the uh, Department of National Defense about a pilot who had seen something. I review it. I take a look at it. And very often, I've been posting this on my blog or on Facebook or presenting it at some conferences or seminars or workshops. So it's not the type of thing that that is uh, completely classified. Um, there's a few things, as in my, my book, uh, that do get declassified eventually from a higher level, and I can talk about those. But you know, by and large, these are things that are generally unclassified. And what's curious is that um, Transport Canada, which is the Canadian equivalent of the FAA um, routinely uh, makes available to the public, anyone who wants um, information about UFOs that pilots are seeing. And in Canada, they're still actually called UFOs. Um, The uh, the abbreviation UAP is not used by Canada, at least in Transport Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, And over the past 20 years or so, A number of people have filed these requests, and I've been getting these requests directly, but there's something like 500 uh, cases where Transport Canada has received uh, sightings from pilots and air traffic controllers and so forth uh, directly to their office. And we know all about them, and we have details, and in some cases there are uh, additional uh, documents to support some of them. Uh, so, you know, in Canada, you know, we might be considered a little more transparent than the United States. Uh, I often say that, you know, ever since Blue Book ended uh, back in 1969 and early 1970, you know, we really haven't had any information about what the United States government has been doing with regard to uh, UFOs or now UAP up until when we found out about this this project that uh, ran from 2007 to 2012. But that that gap you know, is still there that we don't know a lot about, although people like Paul Dean and um, Jan Aldrich and others uh, have been working very diligently to to fill in some of that. Whereas in Canada, uh, the Canadian government has a record of investigating uh, and uh, studying the UFO reports and interviewing witnesses right from the forties up until the present. And we have many of those cases. I have uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of these cases uh, that uh, we've looked at and I've been, uh, publishing details of some of them in my annual Canadian UFO survey. So, you know, we, we do have a, a little more uh, going in that sense. And and yet it's in response to um, the UAP, UAP task force um, and the attention that, uh, uh, that, that's going on with regard to congressional hearings and so forth uh, and testimony now as a result of the Nimitz uh, uh, tic-tacs and things like that that the Canadian uh, politicians are getting a little more interested. Uh, It it seemed that the politicians themselves in Canada were a little hands-off until recently, and now they're really starting to get more involved.
2: Right. And again, that's what excites me most, no matter what everyone thinks about if progress is being made with the overall UFO conversation in terms of, um, you know, here in America with the Pentagon and the hearings and everything, Uh, you know, you could argue that for sure that this actually might hinder the transparency that could occur. But um, I I do think it's, it's good that now Canada is sort of following suit. And also Brazil is going to be having their own congressional hearings Mm -hmm. uh, later this month, where I know uh, people like Robert Salas, a gentleman involved with a nuclear ufo case here in the states ufo seen over a nuclear installation that he witnessed uh will be testifying at the brazilian congressional hearing along with luis elizondo and and other individuals as well so yeah it, it you know it can't hurt i guess that's the best way i can put it um we'll see you know only time will tell what what we'll actually get out of all of this when it comes to government and ufos but um it's pretty interesting pretty interesting in my opinion
0: yeah, and I actually am giving a presentation at the Brazilian UFO conference uh, that's coming up in a few weeks too. Really, I did so, not uh, know
2: that. Wow. Yeah.
0: yeah, Um and so there's you know a, a lot of involvement and a, a lot of interest in the subject, and uh, and even though the Canadian politicians may have been a little slow to act in response to what's going on in the states, um, I mean Canadian Canadian politicians have. Um, been presented with information and have requested information. Uh, UFOs have been mentioned in uh, the Canadian parliament dozens of times. I don't know how many times UFOs have been mentioned in Congress itself on the floor, but in Canada, it's, it's happened quite a bit. And uh, there actually has been a a previous uh, briefing to the Canadian Senate. And I've been contacted by some of the uh, politicians, sitting members of parliament and a member of the Canadian Senate because You know, uh, this is something that is worth studying, uh, uh, you know, and uh, I make the the case not necessarily with regard to aliens, but in regard to safety and defense. And, and, uh, you know, that's the approach from the United States as well.
2: Absolutely right. And, you know, I think that kind of brings us up to current day with this book that you just released, Uh, again, Canada's UFOs Declassified. So um, I'd love to start, Chris, with the origin story of the book. Um now I'd love to know how did you obtain all of these? Uh again, I know that people have reached out to you and you have reached out to individuals within the government. And uh your book is just jam-packed with declassified files from all different organizations and institutions and whatnot. And the one I think that really caught my attention, and maybe it's because I'm an American and I'm very familiar with Project Blue Book, um, we had here in the States, something known as the Robertson panel, um, which Mm -hmm. was a very controversial thing during the blue book days. And now I'm learning that there was something in Canada called the Robertson briefing, which really confused the heck out of me. I'm like, are these things connected? What's going on here? Until I read your book and finally um, realized exactly what this was, how um, I guess grand it really was and uh, how important it was in shaping kind of a a, a large portion of your book. So um, yeah, would you mind giving us the origin story of how the book came to be and what this Robertson briefing is? This really intrigues me.
0: Well, sure. The background is that, um, you know, the Canadian government has uh, been involved in investigating and research uh, uh, of UFOs for many decades. Uh, In the 40s and into the 50s, it was the responsibility of the Royal Canadian Air Force uh, in about the, the mid-1960s, um, because, largely because of Blue Book and Grudge and, and uh, uh, some of the, the American uh, comments that were going on, the military in Canada also wanted to get out of the UFO business. Uh, they didn't think it was a defense problem. You hear that comment all the time. They wanted it to be passed off somewhere, but they still wanted to have sort of a uh, an arm's length uh, association with it. So what happened was that the National Research Council of Canada, which I guess the closest equivalent would be the Smithsonian, uh, uh, was given responsibility to uh, receive and investigate UFO reports in Canada. And um, the problem was that they're based in uh, Ottawa, in the, the you know in the government uh, center, so they needed a way of getting it, reports from all across the entire country. And what they had was a, a very ready-made system. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police has detachments and offices right across the country in many, many major and smaller cities and towns. And so they enlisted the, the police to investigate UFO reports from the public and from pilots and military personnel and send them into the National Research Council, who would then take part in some investigations. So that took place starting in about the 1960s. That remained in place until about the 19, mid-1990s. Um, and uh, after that, we started getting into Transport Canada and some of the, uh, the uh, my involvement a little more directly in getting cases from national defense. But during that time when the National Research Council was investigating, they compiled many, many hundreds of documents. In fact, uh, at, at one count, there was something like nine or 10,000 separate documents mm-hmm. oh, about wow. UFOs. And... Um, in uh, a little after the year 2000, maybe about 2003-2005 into the 2008, um, uh, the records for the National Research Council of Canada every year were transferred to the National Archives of Canada. So uh, UFO reports for all of 1972, at the end of 1972 for example, went to the uh, archives and then they got ready for 1973. And Uh, The archives is open to the public. A Canadian citizen can walk into the archives and do research. And I, like many other people, went to the archives and visited. I just have to get your official card. Uh, And, uh, um, you know, pass allowed you to gain access to a lot of the files. And so I got access to a lot of the paper copies of the UFO files. Um, And then um, because there was so much interest in the subject in the mid-2000s, uh, Libraries and Archives, Canada digitized uh, nine or ten thousand separate documents uh, from various agencies, the Air Force and uh, national defense and transport and so forth, and made them available online. So a lot of people in Canada grabbed them and downloaded them. I, I think uh, uh, the uh, archives for UFOs in uh, in Scandinavia as a copy, uh, Isaac Coy has a copy, and I think a lot of other people have copies, but there's so much material in there, it's hard to sort out. So uh, based on my files, but then also based largely on the National Research Council files, I delved into what was there, and I went through each document, trying to find some of the more interesting cases and some evidence of what really was going on in the Canadian government. Now, I have to say that um, uh, there there's a PhD thesis by a fellow named Matthew Hayes, which just came out a few months ago in Canada. Uh, looking at what the Canadian government really thought about UFOs, um, and it wasn't very positive. But it's a it's an incredible detailed doctoral thesis, um, and uh, you know it, it, you know it's uh, um, uh, you know one of those uh, things that a, a good ufologist might get you know as mm-hmm. a as a backup. <laughs> but in terms of the actual cases, because he was looking at the the letters to and from various mm-hmm. agencies, he didn't look too much into the cases themselves. I wanted to know, are there any interesting cases in there that, that should have been looked into a little bit more and what happened through some of the investigations? So I went through every document and I found some real gems in there. And one of them was this thing called the Robertson briefing. And what it was is in 1967, um, when um, the Minister of National Defense was was uh, leaving his office and a new one was was coming in, the one that was leaving, by the way, was Paul Hellier, who a lot of UFO types will know mm-hmm. uh, by name. Uh, the new one was called uh, Leo Cadu, and he needed to be briefed. Now, this echoes directly what was going on just uh, just last year, of course. Um, and what's curious is we we don't have the slides from this from that briefing from 1967, but we have the briefing itself, and it's amazing. It's 28 pages long and it lays out the policy uh, of uh, national defense and what to do about uh, UFOs. It describes what's going on in the States. It describes uh, um, some of of, uh, the procedures and the analyses, and it has a section in which uh, they list six cases that can't be explained. In fact, uh, there's actually a statement in uh, this briefing where the National Defense and uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police both say that some of these cases cannot be explained. And these were the top six cases out of many hundreds that had been received. Wow. Uh, and uh, it's such a, a very important document that in the book, I insisted that, we, that the publisher actually reproduce all 28 pages yeah. uh, of this document so that you can see for yourself... Which are the most interesting cases and, and the ones that the Canadian government itself couldn't explain?
2: Very interesting. Yeah, it's like sort of, to me, echoing either Project Blue Book with some 700 cases that remained unexplained. Or even more currently, you know, these 144 cases that the U.S. Pentagon and Defense Agency looked at. Um, 144, and they were able to explain one. You know, so it's very telling. And six, hey, that's a lot when it comes to national defense. Um, that's a lot of cases that remain unsolved and could be a potential threat in some way, shape or form. Um, although yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll,
0: although I'll, I'll quibble with the 144. Okay. Um, in that if you actually read what's in the task force, it doesn't say that those ones couldn't be explained. What it says, if you really look at the, the paragraph uh, a little bit below there, it says these are the ones um, that uh, for the most part didn't have enough information in order to explain them. In other words, they had a uh, an idea, perhaps, that they were a balloon or a plane or something, but didn't couldn't uh, identify exactly which plane or balloon or whatever, except for the one that was a deflating balloon. Right. Um, and that's different because in the Robertson briefing in Canada, they actually talk about how many cases had actually been received and which ones fell into the interesting uh, and don't seem to have an explanation, but we don't have enough. Uh, information to say for sure and so sort of that's that's the equivalent there uh so the, right. there certainly were many more cases in canada noted in the robertson briefing that were of the quality of what was noted in the uap task force but uh uh there were only those six that they said we really don't know which ones those are
2: gotcha that thank you for clearing that up that actually makes a lot more sense now that i think about it um well <laughs> you know in that comparison chris um those six cases, what for you were some of the most uh, intriguing or telling cases that really made you think that this, yeah, this is one that really needs to get out there and um, we should probably find the answers to. Any really stick out in your mind?
0: Well, there's two that uh, might be familiar to uh, some of your uh, uh, viewers. Uh, One is the Falcon Lake case, uh, which happened in 1967, and Shag Harbor, which also happened in 1967. Very briefly, Falcon Lake um, was where uh, a fellow who's a bit of a rock hound, he's described as an amateur prospector, um, was in this area in Manitoba, uh, very rocky, very rugged. Um, uh, He was uh, chipping away at a rock stop for lunch in the middle of the day, and he saw what can only be described as Hollywood style flying saucers descend. One landed on a a rock, flat rock uh, outcropping. 150 away, 150 feet away or so. Um, it was domed, disc-shaped, uh, lights coming from it, uh, had a little door um, that opened on one side from which more light came out, uh, and then there was sort of an exhaust vent, like a, a grill or something, uh, off to one side. And he, at first, um, didn't think it was anything from outer space. He thought it was some sort of uh, American... Uh, secret landing vehicle in fact this was just about the time when the Apollo program was starting up Uh, the tragic Apollo 1 uh, had just occurred Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, uh, there was this possibility of landing on the moon so he thought maybe this was something from the Americans that you know went astray or are they flying it over Canada and it broke down so because he thought it was an American device he walked up to uh, the, this after a while because he had heard some voices coming from inside, uh, from through this doorway thinking it was an American uh, ship. And he called out, hey, you know, Yankee boys, I'll give you a hand fixing your broken down <laughs> flying machine. <laughs> and the voices stopped and he thought, oh, it's not American, it's Russian. So he called out because it happened to be to be a bit of a polyglot. He had been in the military as well uh, in, in a couple of other languages, nothing, but by this time he was standing in front of it he touched the side of it when he bent to look in the this little doorway. His gloved hand, which was uh, covered in a rubberized glove, um, it melted. Um, this door shut. The entire thing rotated, so there is this exhaust vent right in front of him. Out comes a blast of hot gas, setting his clothes on fire, setting fire to the leaves and pine needles around him. The thing took, saw, t- took off. Um And um, he, you know, rips his shirt off, uh, tries to stamp out the the little fire that's smoldering. And uh, he manages to get back to civilization. Uh, And he went to emergency at the hospital where he was treated for burns. And uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Air Force both investigated. And they found the site uh, where... Something had been, you know, there that were burned uh, pine needles and leaves in a circle. Also, there was radioactive material found at the site as well. And all of this is documented in these files. Um, and uh, there's the uh, interrogation of the witness, uh, his family, uh, the uh, the people who ran the hotel uh, where uh, he had stayed overnight, uh, the bartender, like in everybody... Uh, people followed his kids home from school. Um, They talked to his place of work. There was an analysis of the radioactive material found at the site. And then, in addition, uh, a year later, he went back to the site and dug a little bit further into the rock through some cracks, and he found radioactive uh, metal that appeared to have been melted and melted into these cracks. And uh, that material ha- was also tested not only by Canadian uh, laboratories, but also uh, I think the University of Illinois took a crack at it. I think uh, it was sent down to APRO where the Lorenzons had uh, some analysis done. You know, we have the, the actual metallurgical analysis of this, uh, the, the fact that it was radioactive, plus we have the uh, the medical records. Uh, he went to the Mayo Clinic. We have the Mayo Clinic records. This is probably one of the best documented cases in all of ufology. The only thing, pro- the only problem with it is a single witness case. And yet we have so much physical evidence. Throw that out the window. Um, and the the government says it doesn't know what happened. It cannot cannot explain it. That's just one of the cases of the six that they thought were was pretty profound and it gives you an idea of the quality of some of the cases that are in these files
2: right yeah again quality over quantity i think is the key thing here um and we should mention that book right behind you you co-wrote with uh was it his son uh the witness was that yeah okay yeah Yeah. uh, when they appeared wonderful book. i highly suggest people check it out
0: Yeah, just a handful of years ago, uh, I co-wrote the book With This Witness's Son uh, when they appeared. Uh, The title has nothing to do with aliens, but it has to do with the fact that military people showed up on this family's doorstep, uh, spent many days and nights uh, uh, interrogating him, and uh, it was quite an ordeal for the family. It's an in-depth study of what happens to a witness of a UFO.
2: Yep. And again, that's what we're all about here at Somewhere in the Skies is kind of that human, humanistic, uh, lens in which to look at these phenomena and how it impacts people's lives, but not just yeah. the witness, their family. You know, mm-hmm. like you said, the children were very traumatized by all the attention the father got about this and, you know, all these government people hounding them and, and news reporters, skeptics, believers, everything in between. Um, it does take a toll on, on people's lives, even if they weren't directly involved. So yeah, again, that's what I love about that case. And it was mm-hmm. really cool to know that some of these declassified documents were pertaining to the Falcon Lake incident, which I, in the United States, feel doesn't get the recognition it truly deserves. Uh, it should be more well known than a lot of American UFO cases, but yeah. uh, as such is fact, the way the media works.
0: <laughs> as a matter of fact, the site is accessible And um, it's not quite at the level of Roswell, but uh, the town actually sells T-shirts and mugs and all that sort of stuff. And they're working on a marker and that type of thing. And it's curious also that it's in an isolated area. I mean, uh, it's hard to get to. In fact, um, I'm going out there next week um, with a, a tour group. And the only way in that's really practical is to go in by horseback. And it's a 45 minute horse ride, horseback ride in, and a 45 uh, minute horseback ride out over some pretty rugged terrain. This isn't ponies following one another. This is this is uh, cl- horses climbing rock cliffs and things like that. So it's wow. it's quite a challenge.
2: I love that boots on the ground. If I've ever heard it, I love it. Yeah. I love it, Chris. Hey guys, Ryan here. The Summer in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up.
1: Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Well, I mean, Falcon Lake, that's one thing. But another case that caught my attention in the book was something that happened at Clan Lake uh not an area i'm familiar with and we're talking again physical evidence trace evidence left behind by these ufo events and were documented in some way shape or form by official uh investigators and and mm. and documents were created so um yeah would you mind maybe briefly running us through the clan lake incident and why you thought it was integral to including in the book Sure. Clan
0: Lake is in the Northwest Territories of Canada, so it's uh, it's quite a bit far north. Uh, again, uh, and in particularly a, a very, very isolated area, uh, fly-in only. And as a matter of fact, this was 1960, so you're going back a few years, but but bear with me here that um, a hunter had been dropped off by a float plane, and they were going to leave him there for a week or two and then come back and get him. So he had his, all his provisions. The plane had just left. And as he is working on his, his camp, um, he hears a, a loud rumbling noise. And he thought another float plane is coming by. He looks up, can't see anything, uh, turns his back to the lake because uh, he's working on his camp. And he hears something whistling coming down behind him. He turns just in time to see something metallic with spikes spinning and spinning and spinning, descending onto the lake and as it hits the lake it splashes and throws water in all directions and slowly spins slower and slower and goes below the surface of the lake so he uh boats over to where this happened where he saw this and uh in you could see that the reeds uh in the marshy area at the side of the lake had been torn out and there seems to be a big muddy gouge under the water uh and he took one of his uh his paddles and was poking the the bottom to see if he could touch anything, but couldn't touch anything. And there was nothing else he could do. So he kind of went back to hunting. Uh, And uh, when he was picked up and got back to uh, civilization, he went to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Office, explained what had happened. And the the Mounties thought, well, maybe a plane went down or, you know, a chunk of a plane or something. So they flew back with him. And they probed with some long poles. Again, they couldn't find anything. Um, but they informed the National Research Council about this as well. And the National Research Council thought maybe it was a meteorite um, that, uh, you know, very bright and uh, had fallen. And maybe it was spinning when it came in. But there was some discussion about what to do. By this time, it was starting to be fall and the, the lake was going to freeze. They left it to the spring. In the spring, they were trying to get a scientist out with a a magnetic field detector to see if they could spot it. And this went on, actually, for many, many months. Eventually, they said, you know what? Let's just leave it. Let's just forget all about it. (laughs) Which I thought was kind of curious. Because, number one, if it's a meteor or a meteorite that large, you'd think that science would be all over this thing. You'd, You'd think that this would be invaluable. Okay. Maybe it was a satellite, a chunk of a satellite. Well... If it wasn't our satellite, it was their satellite. And you'd think that you'd want to retrieve that too. And yet there was no attempt after, uh, you know, 18 months or so. And the whole thing was forgotten and only found through an examination of some of these documents. So you wonder what was really going on. What was found? What, you know, was anything going to be found? Uh, What was this? Because there actually is kind of a a sequel to this Mm -hmm. um, in that. In the 1980s, uh, a Russian satellite crashed in the Northwest Territories, not all that far away from, from the spot. Uh, it was Cosmos 954, and uh, it was a fairly large Russian satellite that had a nuclear um, uh, power source on board. And when it crashed into a, you know, thankfully relatively unpopulated area, um uh, it, it you know, crashed and split apart into many, many pieces, uh, but many of the pieces were radioactive. So the United States uh, and Canada both went into a joint retrieval operation. Um, they uh, gathered as many pieces as they could. The largest piece was the size of a refrigerator. The smallest was the head of a pin. Uh, the operation took uh, many, many weeks. There were actually some uh, some settlements, some some people were living in the area, they had to be tested and examined. There's some cur- concern about environmental effects. Uh, I think there was like a very rare heron or something that, that it was its uh, nesting grounds that was affected, things like that. Um, and it co- caused quite a concern. It was a huge investigation. As a matter of fact, Russia was handed a bill for uh, several hundred thousand dollars, which it never paid, but... Um, <laughs> but it was quite a quite an operation and it was fully documented and this document is available as well and that's from a a satellite and they retrieve things as small as the head of a pin and yet whatever happened in 1960 at Clan Lake they gave up on why i don't know
2: hmm. that is very interesting i didn't know about the follow up so yeah it does truly make you wonder what happened decades before that wow um that's really cool really cool and again we have the documents to back this up which is why Mm -hmm. i love the book so much um well physical effects chris that's something i want to talk to you about too uh we just had a story come out here in the states recently that the pentagon did look into physical effects on witnesses when it comes to seeing ufos or claimed close encounters whether it's um You know, some say they were paralyzed by UFOs or there was brain damage or uh, stuff like that that happened to them after seeing a UFO. Um, I'm curious, did you come across any cases like that um, within these files or or just cases in general uh, that you know of where people were physically and sometimes dramatically affected by these UFOs they were seeing anything in the files like that? Actually,
0: there's quite a lot in the files like that, uh, apart wow. from the one that I just mentioned, Falcon Lake, where the fellow was b- physically burned, and he also had some chemical burns uh, on his abdomen. Uh, I think the thing to note about some of these claimed effects, a lot of them came from, uh, I think, John Schusler's Potpourri, where it was sort of a, a collection of stories that he had heard, and none of them were actually documented, and it was included as a as kind of a note in an appendix, and that made it into a report about UAP. So... Mm-hmm. You know, there are cases like that, uh, although this particular report that was referenced isn't the best source for that. But we do have documents in Canada, at least, uh, that testify to this. In addition to the Falcon Lake case, um, there were uh, a a case in uh, Rivers, Manitoba. Actually, uh, Armed Forces personnel were involved. Uh, There were uh, eight or nine military personnel who all reported a, a loud rumbling noise and a bright light descended uh, there was actually a, a soldier who was driving with his girlfriend. He was uh, off duty or off hours. Um, and uh, he's driving in, in the car with his girlfriend. And this object came over his car. Um, there was a bright, intense light and this heat that enveloped the entire car. Uh, when he got back to the base, the car was impounded um, by the motor pool. Uh, the uh, the auto body uh, officer uh, said that uh, there was some some dust on the car. He had never been see, had seen anything like it before. There was some bubbling of the paint uh, that was on the on this particular car, um, and you know there there are quite a few interesting cases like that. A lot of tidbits where people seem to have been affected uh, and felt some effects from the uh, from the uh, the case. There was a, a case in. Uh, I believe it was Nova Scotia where there was a train, uh, a trainman uh, actually on the caboose, I believe, who uh, an object swooped over the, uh, the train as it was traveling and he felt some intense heat. There's even a case that I documented in the book of a veterinary effect where uh, uh, a, a woman uh, was at her uh, uh, corral and uh, just inside the barn. And a, a UFO was seen in the sky. It shot a beam uh, like a solid beam of light, uh, like a pencil into the barn. and uh, her horses uh, were so agitated that uh, one actually s- s- sort of knocked its uh, hoof right through a wall uh, and was injured, and there seemed to be some, some something wrong with one of its uh, on the side of its neck. So there was a veterinary effect that was reported. Uh, from a ufo as well so there are cases where there are physical effects seen by uh, experienced by witnesses Um, but it's interesting to actually look at some of the documentation where this is actually laid out in some detail
2: right again yeah you you know that's if it's down on paper it doesn't necessarily make it true but it shows that it was worth investigating And I think that's what's what's most important. Um, Well, you know, we don't want to give away a lot of the good stories, Chris, because obviously I want people to read the book like I did. But um, the last thing I really want to touch on with you in terms of some of the documents that you did uncover and put in the book were something we don't talk about that much anymore. In the UFO world. And that's crop circles. You know, this (laughs) was a big thing back in the 80s, the 90s, especially over in Europe and whatnot. But we have them all over here in the Midwest, in the US and all over Canada as well. And you actually came across some documents pertaining to crop circles in the book. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about that?
0: Sure. And as you mentioned, you know, this was 80s and 90s, although um, I, I think I saw a post just the other day that uh, there's some formations that have been found this year already in England. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But we always associate, you know, the, the real crop circles with England. Right. Um, and yet in the, the documentation of uh, some of the files that were declassified, Uh, there was a case of a crop circle Um, in a place called Duhamel, Alberta. Um, It's a good cattle and farming country. And a farmer came across um, some rings in his field. And uh, so he notified the authorities. Uh, Actually, it was a roundabout way. He actually, uh, uh, somebody from the local school saw it. And this guy happened to be a, a UFO fan. So he ended up notifying some authorities. Anyways, the military went out, and it was investigated by the Royal Canadian Air Force. Now, that by itself may not seem all that interesting, although, well, Royal Canadian Air Force investigating a crop circle—that's rather unique. Except that this occurred in 1967, uh, long before anything was even, uh, 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 you know, thought about in uh, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's actually photographs of these uh, these rings that were fairly large, uh, documented. Royal Canadian Air Force investigated. In fact, uh, a report on the uh, Air Force investigation is contained in these documents, in the files, and it's noted as uh, 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 rings and markings in a field associated with UFOs. Even though the farmer never said that anybody had seen a UFO and nobody came forward to say they had seen a UFO, it was associated with UFOs according to the Royal Canadian Air Force. And uh, they investigated. The, they took soil samples. They measured. They, you know, did you know, examined in in three ways from Tuesday. It was, you know, they did a fairly detailed analysis of this, and they produced a report, an actual uh, study. You know, we, we think of the UAP studies and all the, the the position papers and whatever that were found down there. I forget how many eighty six or something. Well, this is one from from Canada about. Uh, crop circles or rings found in a field because of associated thought-to-be UFOs from 1967, Uh, a very interesting scientific report. And um, in addition, there was one document that said uh, that a ministerial inquiry was ordered to look into this particular case. So the Minister of National Defense, who at that time was actually Paul Hellyer, um, ordered an inquiry into the crop circle that was found in Canada in 1967. Uh, you never heard Paul talk about this, by the way. Uh, yeah. In, in any of his recent stuff. It's none of his books. Uh, but, uh, and yet this was something that, that he himself wanted to know more about. And we have the documentation that something occurred. Again, imagine if the Secretary of Defense ordered an investigation into UFOs or crop circles in the United States. Tremendously important yeah. And yet uh, and yet, this was going on in Canada just, uh, you know, maybe 50 to 75 miles uh, north of the, the American border. You know, something uh, quite interesting was going on. And so Canada has had uh, involvement in ufology all along. You know, the in, in United States had Blue Book. Canada actually had two projects, Project Magnet and Project Second Story. They also were looking into UFOs and national defense and transport. And to this day, Transport Canada uh, invites or asks or demands pilots report UFOs to them. And uh, cases are continually being reported to them and also through national defense. So, you know, in many ways, Canada might be, I don't know, ahead of the curve, uh, ahead of what the United States is going through. Maybe they should be taking the Navy and the United States Air Force should be taking tips from what Canada (laughs) is doing rather than what uh, seems to be going on.
2: That is such a good point. I was going to say, you know, America thinks it's always at the forefront of everything and we influence other places. But, yeah, I think you guys were ahead of us in terms of uh, how important it is to actually report these things and to destigmatize the nature of reporting. Um, Maybe we would be a lot further than we are now here in the U.S. where I think our government has been backed into a corner and has to now admit things that they denied or lied about. Whereas Canada seems to be like, yeah, just nobody ever asked. But here, there yeah, yes. you go, here you go. We're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, So I, I love that. I love that idea. Um, well, I want to know, Chris, in writing this book and coming across these cases and and doing the work you've done throughout all the years, uh, what surprised you most in researching? For this book, anything really stand out as being like, huh, you know, I went in wanting to write about one thing and I came out on the other side um, learning something myself, which I think any author should do when writing a book. Um, What was that journey like for you and any big revelations by the end of all this?
0: Well, sure. There uh, I have to say that this is kind of um, the first part. I don't want to say the first book in a series, but. This uh, only goes up until about 1971 or something like that, or into the early 1970s, um, and not quite into the 80s. Uh, there were many, many more, more files, many of which have, had not been digitized, but we've been able to find many of them ourselves, plus everything that's occurred since then. Um, so this is actually just a snapshot of what had been occurring. And whereas the United States' uh, viewpoint was that uh, UFOs and flying saucers might have represented some sort of uh, security threat, uh, some matter for defense. Uh, because in Canada, the responsibility for UFOs was given to the National Research Council, a scientific body, uh, that the view was looked at more of a of a scientific issue, uh, more of a Condon if, issue, if you want to use that mm-hmm. analogy, uh, even though Condon, of course, was sponsored by the United States Air Force. So there was this this dynamic going back and forth and some some tug of war. But in Canada, uh, because of the scientific viewpoint, uh, many of the scientists involved did not really get all that worked up about UFOs. They were sure that people were making stuff up or misidentifying things. In many cases, they did turn out to be such. And one thing I do in my book is uh, I do uh, show that many cases were explained. Uh, and do have viable explanations, but uh, there were some that that didn't seem to have such easy explanations. but because the the government had this attitude that it was a scientific problem and it, it just a matter of people learning a little bit more about UFOs and what's in the sky, and everything would be hunky dory after that, um, that uh, uh, i I thought that perhaps they they really weren't doing their job they really were. Uh, not investigating as much as they could. As a matter of fact, recently, there's been some discussion on UFO Twitter, places like that, that say the Canadian government, you know, uh, hasn't been doing anything at all with regard to UFOs, and uh, they better get their act together because look what the United States is doing. Whereas um, the documentation shows the reverse, that the Canadian government took UFOs very seriously on a number of levels. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and the Royal Canadian Air Force And certain individuals within the National Research Council uh, did in-depth studies of a lot of cases, uh, not just Falcon Lake, but certainly uh, a number of others uh, that amounted to dozens and dozens, in some cases, hundreds of pages of of documentation and investigation. Uh, So I think the biggest problem was that the government departments themselves uh, were not connected. I think the problem was communication, whereas uh, the Ministry of Transport wasn't talking to National Defense, National Defense wasn't talking to the scientists. They seemed to be to be very siloed and and compartmentalized. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the biggest problem that I saw. And yet, uh, there were enough really good cases in there uh, that they should have been investigated. I mean, there were cases where objects landed um, on roadways, leaving behind marks in the asphalt, and nobody seemed to investigate those. There were Uh, Some close encounter cases where individuals uh, seem to have seen entities and those weren't followed up on. So I think the problem was follow up, but also because uh, there didn't seem to be any consistent um, and organized investigative body. And what I'm hoping, and I think what most people are hoping from uh, the United States example, is that there will be a a consistent investigative body, uh, not just instrumented uh sightings to be considered like what we seem to be hearing now from um project galileo and uh and uh some of the uh, other organizations that are going to be using all sky cameras and whatnot uh, because there is a human element here that has to be taken into consideration i mean for the most part uh these are uh you know eyewitnesses and uh with associated physical effects and whereas we know Eyewitnesses are are not absolutely reliable. There's many cases where eyewitnesses have been terribly wrong, including pilots and uh, and other people with uh, pretty decent observing capabilities. Um, But eyewitness testimony is uh, good enough to convict people in a court of law. And um, human observers during the early days of space flight uh, were invaluable in assessing uh, what was going on in space and uh, the defense threat. When Sputnik went up, uh, there was a lot of reliance on uh, uh, civilian observations of Sputnik, for example. Uh, And more recently, uh, uh, in aerospace and uh, in in aircraft dynamics, uh, you know, plane spotters, uh, it's a real thing where people, you know, observe planes flying overhead. And this is how some intelligence was acquired with regarding the development of the stealth bomber. So um, there is valuable uh, information that can be gleaned from eyewitnesses uh, in addition to, to uh, you know, uh, sightings and, and uh, detections made, made with technology. Uh, and I think the marriage of the two is what we're looking for, hopefully in the United States, and hopefully something will come of it in Canada as well
2: yeah i love that again you know mixing the witness testimony with the um the data i think is crucial we need both sides of the coin if we're ever going to truly figure out what's going on i mean you look at the tic event and all we had at first was the video and everyone's like okay cool but what is it who saw it like what's the mm-hmm. story behind this and then we got the story and you can start to paint that bigger picture of what actually happened how many were involved how many saw it and um I think you're right. I think there needs to be a cohesion. And that's kind of what I think this new program here in the United States is going to try to do, too, is, um, you know, stop doing this over here with the defense intelligence and the Department of Energy and this and that. And let's all come together and say what we know about UFOs and bring all that information together and try to understand what could be either a life changing, profound discovery or a huge, huge, huge threat. So, who knows? Yeah. Who truly knows? And, but yeah, and I think look cohesion at the history of key.
0: it too, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what we've been hearing about the the Navy and, and just recently from the Air Force is that uh, they, it's they're acting as if Blue Book didn't exist, right. uh, Which I think is a big mistake because there's a lot of good data in there, including some instrumented observe, uh, observations by military personnel. Uh, so I, I don't think they have to reinvent the wheel. In fact, I was concerned when the task force report came out. And they said there really wasn't a mechanism in place for reporting UAP. And how could that possibly be? Because there there are so many uh, reports on file. Um, And, you know, you just have to look at history. So I'm hoping that there will be some consideration of looking not only at the historical uh, information from the United States, but also from other countries like Canada, which has an amazing uh, documented record of investigation and research at the government level, but also civilian research. I mean, the fact that my civilian research was... Uh, was considered important enough to, uh, you know, to be given to a defense minister to be included in a briefing on the status of uh, of UFOs in, in our country, uh, shows that there is some consideration being given to uh, the data collection itself. And uh, you know, I'm hoping I can be part of the uh, the, the mechanism or system going forward. Uh, in fact, when a Canadian politician uh, who's got some uh, press recently, Larry Maguire. Mm-hmm came public. He came out of the closet with regarding to UFOs um, with a, a statement, and he asked a question in a parliamentary committee about UAP, uh, especially those around nuclear facilities in Canada. Um, uh, it, it's noted that he uh, you know, reached out and was given information and was briefed by Louis Elizondo and uh, Hal Putoff and uh, uh, I think Robert Powell from SCU. Uh, but One of the first people he reached out to was me, and I briefed him for uh, quite some time as well. Uh, So, you know, there are are a number of sources um, in uh, in the United States where uh, uh, UFO information is kept, but the Canadian connection is is very solid. And, uh, you know, the politicians on both sides of the the border uh, have a lot of resources to reach out to.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you know what? That gives me hope. For the future. It really does when it comes to this topic. Um, So I guess two last questions for you, Chris. Um, The obvious one being, where can we find the book and all of your work? But I think the more um, important question for ufology overall as someone who's been in this field for a long time, like yourself, um, you know, and myself included, I'm no longer considered one of the younger people in this field, <laughs> which is depressing in some yeah. ways, but also very exciting. We have a lot of younger people getting involved, getting interested. Like you mentioned, UFO Twitter is a thing, which <laughs> is so weird. And um, and just I never thought we would get to this point in this conversation. But we are. And there are younger people who are really excited about this topic. So, um, yeah, where can we get the book? And let us know what you think we should be looking forward to in the years coming up with ufology. And what advice would you give people first getting Mm. involved with this topic? Um, What can they learn from our mistakes and and some of our successes, I guess?
0: Well, sure. I'll I'll answer that part first. I, I think people who are relatively new to the field, um really should take a hard cold look at what's been already done um you know uh, there's a lot of uh, people new to the field who had never read a report on unidentified, unidentified flying objects by Edward Ruppelt uh, one of the classic and seminal works uh read Hynek, uh read Keel you know there uh, read Jenny Randalls there's some you know, some really good books um out there i mean i this uh, book that uh, that we have right now for, uh, from mine uh, Canada's UFOs declassified is my tenth book, um, and uh, uh, you know there's so much information to cover. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, people have been active in the field for many many years, um, and there's a sort of a I think a reluctance to look upon uh, the older stuff as being any at all relevant. But I, I think that uh, people who are new to the field are really missing out on some of the stuff that's been done. I mean. Yeah, one of the things that struck me in, in Canada was how much has already been done uh, in the fact that, you know, Canada had crop circles in 67. Uh, we have trace cases. We had radioactive material being tested in laboratories. There's this big thing about metamaterials being found from crashed UFOs that are, you know, the, the size of a dime or something. Well, the stuff from Falcon Lake, uh, one of the pieces of metal is about five inches long. Um, and you know, much larger than uh, uh, some of the others. In fact, in my book, I describe a case uh, where um, there's a, an object that was thought to be part of a, of a UFO that is the the size of a of a I don't know, size of a large uh, uh, refrigerator, uh, wow. and tested by laboratories. So the, a lot of the the stuff that's really hot right now has precedence and has been looked at in a number of ways. So. I would say, well, look at some of the historical stuff and uh, don't ignore it. In fact, there's a resurgence of interest in some of, you know, some old cases that have had explanations that people are now reassessing. In some cases, that's worthwhile. In some cases, it's not worth bothering about because they're hoaxes and have uh, some explanations. So uh, rely on some of the people who have been around uh, a while. But in terms of my material, um, certainly you can go to Amazon. Uh, I think uh, at least a half dozen or, or more of my books are on Amazon, so you can find me there. Um, I'm also on social media, uh, uh, Facebook. Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, um, and I have uh, some YouTube channel YouTube channels as well. Um, so there's a lot of ways to get in touch with me. I have a, a blog, which is very simple. Uh, euforum.blogspot.com is where I... Uh, actually, publish a lot of uh, documents that nobody's seen before about UFOs and comment on what's going on. So, uh, you know, there are people around. Uh, and um, in terms of Facebook, I'm one of the moderators of uh, UFO Updates, uh, the classic uh, discussion forum for UFOs that uh, started in the 1990s by Earl Bruce Knapp. And uh, I was asked to uh, to be uh, uh, one of the moderators of the new version on Facebook. Uh, very honored by that. We're trying to keep up as much as we can. I realize there's a lot of Facebook groups out there, um, but uh, we try to, you know, to just talk about some of the more interesting cases uh, in a forum that's uh, relatively easily accessible.
2: Yeah, probably one of my favorite groups. They're not afraid to tell you, you know, if you're wrong or um where we should be looking and we need that. We definitely need that in this field, Chris. Not as bad
0: as UFO Watchdog, but we're close.
2: <laughs> That's very true. I don't know if anything will ever reach that level, but hey, we got to keep ourselves humble somehow. Um well, Chris, I think again, you know, not just the book, but the work you do is invaluable to this conversation and I don't know where we would be without the work you've done there in canada my northern neighbor and um and where it's all heading so um i want to congratulate you on the book i hope everyone will check it out and i want to thank you for the very first time for coming on somewhere in the skies it's truly been an honor thank you